Hey, did I ever tell you about the time that I was a magic fairy? Like I would drive my car on you and you would take me to an island? Not that kind of fairy. Hey, bartender, two more bloodies for me and my friend. I was the kind of magic fairy that flies around and enchants people. I worked for this wizard named Prospero. Italian guy? Totally. He'd been the Duke of Milan. His brother Antonio usurped this dukedom. That's terrible. What does usurped mean? Uh, he took it. He, uh, he boosted it. Freaking guy. Forget about it, right? So my boss, he makes a storm. It wrecks the ship carrying Antonio and a bunch of other guys. What guys? Uh, Alonzo Boombots, King of Naples, his, his brother Sebastian Boombots, and so forth. Young guy, Ferdinand. So, what was your play? My play is I make Miranda and Ferdinand fall in love. Who? Miranda is my boss's daughter. I cast a spell, and like the moon hits your eye, that's amore. Eh, happy ending. No way. Next thing I know, Antonio, this guy is a snake. He and Sebastian are trying to kill Alonzo in his sleep. Ah, Svachim. Forget about it. I wake him up, and these guys are like, oh, we had our swords out for some totally different reason. Eh, what are you going to do about it? Hey, look, I want to hear the rest of the story, but I got to take my wife to the hospital. Are you kidding? What happened? A friggin' eagle tried to pick her up. You mean like Don Henley? Trying to get a little of this with your wife? No, an eagle with feathers. Well, why didn't you say something? I was all caught up in your story. You go. I got your bloodies. Seriously? They're on me tomorrow. Same time, same place. I want to tell you about my Aunt Desdemona and her boyfriend Othello. Talk about needing couples therapy. Sounds good. Meanwhile, bartender, turn up the radio. There's this show about stories and how we tell them. And now he thought never-ending story was about his cousin Maureen, Colin McEnroe. Yeah, Maureen really could go on. Uh, all right, so yeah, we're going to be talking about storytelling today, uh, and uh, we have a master storyteller with us. Uh, Matthew Dix is a regular on Slate's Daily Podcast, The Gist with Mike Pesca. Uh, in fact, I think he's the most guested guest on The Gist with Mike Pesca. Pesca. That's hard to say, actually. And he's the author of several books, most recently The Perfect Comeback of Carolyn Jacobs. He's an 18-time Moth Story Slam champion on the famous show The Moth. Uh, the co-founder, I, this takes a while, so just settle back, just uh, in, in, like listing all of his accomplishments. Uh, co-founder and creative director of Speak Up, a storytelling group in Hartford. Uh, and when he has time, he's an elementary school teacher in West Hartford. I might add, parenthetically, Matthew, Dix was also part of the greatest Trinity class ever. Um, it was a class on blogging that we, what year was that? It was like 2005 or, yeah. or six or something. 2005. It was the greatest class, class ever. I mean, you guys, everybody did great things afterwards and everybody was amazing. And it wasn't just the greatest class I've ever taught. It was the greatest class ever, maybe on any college campus. It was like that. It was that good. Uh, so, I mean, everybody did amazing things, and Matt certainly is a great example of that. So um, so tell us a story. You're a master story. We're gonna, as we go along today, we're going to talk about how to tell stories, about how you probably have more stories to tell than you think. You might even be able to get better at telling those stories pretty easily. Uh, we're just going to talk about the art of the story as we go along today. You're going to hear some stories from other people, but we have a master storyteller in here, so... Um, tell us a story. All right. I'm going to tell you a story that sort of will illustrate um, a misconception about storytelling. So it's uh, December of 1988. I'm coming out of the record store. I got a bag in my hand. I see my friend Pat. He's walking towards me. He asks me what's in the bag. I tell him it's a present for my friend Benji, a Christmas present, a surprise present. And Pat looks at me weird. And Pat's 15 and I'm 17. But Pat's like already cooler than I've ever been in my entire life. So when he looks at me like this, I'm always a little worried. 
He tells me that guys don't buy Christmas presents for other guys. And we especially don't buy surprise Christmas presents for other guys. He tells me he's had girlfriends for six months that he's never bought a thing for. So me buying this present is weird. And I acknowledge that this is true. I know it. But, you know, at 17, I've had a lot of bad Christmases in a row. My family's sort of a wreck and there's no money in the house. And for the first time in my life, I have a job. I'm working at McDonald's, making six bucks an hour. I'm the richest person in the world that I know. And I've decided to buy gifts. And now I'm suddenly feeling sort of, you know, self-conscious about the betta fish that's in the backseat of my car, the one I just bought for Pat at the pet store as his surprise Christmas present. And, you know, the, the sweatshirt for Tom and the comic books for Coog. But I don't care, so I'm going to do it. So I get in my car. I head home because i got to get my McDonald's uniform on. got to drop my presents off, get back to work. Uh, it's snowing. It's December 23rd, a couple of days before Christmas. I'm coming down a hill. Um, my car starts to slide into the, opposite direct, into the opposite lane. I'm driving a Datsun B210, 78 Datsun. It's like the size of a box of Pop-Tarts. And as I start to slide in the other lane, I see a Mercedes coming up the road. And there are these moments in your life when they say that time will slow down, and it absolutely is true in this moment. I think three thoughts exactly at the same time. First, I'm not wearing my seatbelt, and I always wear my seatbelt. This is like the worst day to forget to wear my seatbelt, and I've chosen it. Uh, The second thing I think about is I've always been told to steer into the skid in these moments, but it occurs to me I don't know what the hell that actually means. I don't know which way that is supposed to turn. And the third thought is just five words, and I say them out loud right before the cars hit. This is going to suck. (laughs) And it does. Like, when we hit, I go through the windshield. I tear my head apart. My chin hits the steering wheel, knocks out all my teeth. My legs get embedded in the air conditioning unit underneath the car, rips. You know, it's a mess. I am a wreck. Uh, I climb out of the car, and the woman in the Mercedes, she gets out of the car, and she's walking towards me. She's not hurt at all because she had her her seatbelt on. She takes one look at me. She vomits in the street and passes out. And so I'm lying down in the road. The first people that get there are a bunch of kids. Kid gets over, looks at me, sees the wreck I'm, I am. He lays me down in the ground. He says, you know, dude, you're screwed. And he's right. It's like the most accurate medical assessment I'll receive that day. <laughs> and so I'm lying on the side of the road with snow falling in my eyes, and I close my eyes. When I open my eyes again, I'm in the ambulance. And there's a woman straddling my waist, and she's pounding on my chest. And there's a guy trying to force a tube down my throat, and she starts screaming, he's back, he's back. And I don't know who she's talking about, but it's me. I had died. I had, like, stopped breathing. My heart had stopped beating, and they brought me back. So I'm in the emergency room, and they're trying to put me back together, getting me ready for surgery. And a nurse comes over, and she asks me for my information, and I tell her what my parents' phone number is and how to get in touch with them. And then I tell her that she needs to call McDonald's. Because I'm scheduled to be at work that, you know, in a couple hours. And, like, even though I was dead 20 minutes ago, the drive through does not run well without me there. And they're going to have to get somebody in. And she thinks I'm crazy. But, you know, bless her heart, she actually makes the phone call. She calls McDonald's. Because my parents don't show up at the emergency room. When they find out that I'm stable, they go and they check on the car. They want to see the condition of it. And so I'm sitting there on December 23rd waiting for a surgeon who is hard to find two days before Christmas. And I'm in a lot of pain And they're trying to keep me together until I go into the OR. And I can tell that the nurses are kind of looking at each other like, this is weird that this kid doesn't have parents and where the hell are they? But I'm not alone because the waiting room of the emergency room fills up with kids, 17 and 18-year-old kids in ripped jeans and concert T-shirts because that woman who called McDonald's, McDonald's told my friends, and my friends started an old-fashioned phone tree. And before I know it, there's 20 17, 18-year-old kids and one 15-year-old kid 
in there and they're making noise and they're doing inappropriate things and they're screaming for me. And the nurses realize I'm not going to have parents here today. So they roll me over to the doors. They pop it open. And each one of my friends leans in and waves to me, tell me they love me and, and say things to make me laugh. And so I roll into the OR and it turns out that, you know, Pat said you can't get Christmas presents for your friends. But um, he turns out to be wrong because uh, the betta fish ends up being the only casualty of the accident. But my friends end up giving me, like, the gift of family. And until I meet my wife, you know, 20 years later, they're honestly the only friend, the only family that I have. And they end up being the only family that I really need. Okay, so that's obviously an amazing story. You said you were telling it partly to illustrate a misconception about storytelling. So what's the misconception? So when I started telling stories for the moth, uh, my friends told me I needed to go to the moth because I've had a life of horrible misfortune. (laughs) You know, it's actually I've died twice. I've been brought back from CPR twice. I've been a horrific armed robbery that I suffered through. Um, I was arrested and tried for a crime I did not commit. And that's like sort of five of 15 terrible things that have happened. And rendered homeless. And rendered, yes, I was homeless for a while in my life. Really terrible things. So I went to the moth thinking that those were going to be the stories that people are going to want to hear. It took me forever, though, to tell that car accident story. Because it turns out the car accident part of that story is not the part that anybody cares about. Yes, I was in a car accident. Yes, I had to be brought back. But it wasn't until I realized that the real part of that story, the part that makes it a story, is the idea that there are times in our lives when our family aren't there for us, for some of us at least, but our friends can be there. And it's that moment in the emergency room that's the most important part of the story. In fact, the car accident turns out to be irrelevant to the story completely. It is not the emotional thing that people connect to. It's that moment that the emergency door room swings open and my friends start looking in. That's what's important about storytelling, the little emotional moments in our lives and not the times we go through windshields and die. It seems to me there's a lot of things in the story that are important. First of all, there's a little bit of misdirection, right? That the, the, You first of all think that the story has something to do very specifically with that whole question of can you buy Christmas gifts you know, for other guys and stuff like that. So it seems like it's sort of going to be about that. It doesn't seem like it's going to be a story in which something really dire happens. And I do feel that there are emotional twists and turns. And certainly – to me, like the hardest emotional pivot is the one where your parents go to look at the car. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, like everything inside of me is going, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's right. wrong. Um, but then you kind of save us, right? You save us by the way that you were saved. Yeah. I mean, I like to, I call it a turn in a story. Mm-hmm. I like to, you know, my wife tells me that the best stories I tell are laugh, 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 cry. So mm-hmm. I like to think I'm going to take you on um, take you on a journey in one direction, and I'm going to try to convince you that we're heading in this one direction, and then I'm going to trick you into realizing that we were actually on an entirely different road the whole time, and you didn't realize it. It's the act of surprise, which in a movie or a television show, y- you have to have surprise, and I believe in storytelling that when you can have that kind of a surprise, that kind of emotional surprise, it makes those stories more effective. Do you also conscience, consciously put in tiny little bits of kind of everyday detail in order to – I mean, once again, you're kind of lulling us into thinking that this is an ordinary day. Yeah. I mean, you know, I call it grittiness. You want a little bit of grit in a story. So I'm going to grab details that first I remember. That's always really helpful in telling mm-hmm. the stories to do the stuff that's real. But then just just enough to give you a sense. You know, I tell you it's 1988 though because – I think telling the year is perfect because now you know what music's on the radio Mm -hmm. and you know what kind of cars are on the road. You know who the president is. It sort of sets a giant context that I don't have to um, play with. 
So then I can just tell you that it's snowing and I've got a bag in my hand and I've got the beta fish in the car. So those little details sort of anchor you into the story in a way that you wouldn't be if I, if I didn't provide those. All right. So as we go along here, we're going to play some stories uh, that other people called into a um, phone project uh, that will sort of an uh, an answering machine project that we had here. We'll also play um, a story that was recorded today by one of our regular contributors, Rand Richards Cooper. We've got some tweets coming in. Uh, John tweets. Hold on. Let me go back to John's tweet. Now that's telling a story. Uh, LB tweets. I'm going to have to drive around for a while. And uh, uh, Helder tweets. Uh, so Pesca takes a week off from the gist, and you guys swipe Matthew Dix. Bold move. I'd like to say I saw Matthew Dix first. Um, and also, we've stolen everything from the gist, including Mike Pesca himself. So, I mean, there's really nothing that's nailed down over the gist that we, with a conscience-free move, do not feel comfortable stealing. Uh, if you have your own com- <laughs> uh, comments, that particularly if you want to tweet, Twitter seems to be lively today, so you can uh, you can uh, tweet us at WNPR Colin. Our tweet master is there. Um, so yeah, let's hear one of the stories that came into the voicemail project, and then uh, Matt can talk about it a little bit. This is uh, what we're referring to as the dog and deer. Earlier this summer, I was sitting in the house reading the paper while my dog was lounging in the backyard. Quiet day, nice day. Suddenly, my dog started barking, and I looked out to see him barking at a deer. And normally, when this happens, I'm seeing the white of the tail as the deer runs away. But this time, he was having a stare down with this deer. So the deer was staring at him. Rocky was barking away. And I thought, this is really weird. What's happening? I go outside with my newspaper in hand, start shaking that around to see if I could scare off the deer. Of course, that didn't work. So all I could do was watch this happen. The deer kept getting closer. Rocky kept barking. Next thing you knew, there was sort of this tussle, like a cartoon cloud of dust, stomping, barking. I thought, oh my gosh, the deer is going to stomp my dog to death. What's happening? I screamed. Then suddenly the deer disappeared, and out of the cloud of smoke came my dog with a bloody lip and a broken nail, and that's it. Panting away, he was absolutely fine. It wasn't until after all this happened that I realized there must have been a baby with the deer. So she was just trying to protect her fawn, and Rocky was trying to protect my yard. And that's it. All right. Uh, There's some great – well, I'll let you analyze it, first of all. Well, it's a good story. I mean, um, I think at this point I would – if I was working with this person, I'd tell them that it's an anecdote. What I really would want from from her is we don't get any revelation about her as a person – Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting incident that happened in her backyard. And what I would do is I'd try to pry uh, some deeper meaning from her. And it, it probably related to the dog. You know, like I have a dog who's 14 and um, I've got a lot of emotion wrapped into that dog, you know, and some of it is sort of embarrassing, which is the best kind of emotion to share in a story. So if she's got some of that. I think that would help. But I'd like to think that at the end of that incident, she came away in some way changed. Um, from before the incident. And if we could find that, then we're going to have a good story. Yeah, and I bet you that's there, too. You can almost kind of hear it in her voice. I mean, there's some reason why that story is really meaningful. Because particularly at the end, I mean, although I know that you're a little distrustful of trying to wrap anything up in a really nice, neat bow. And so she's kind of looking for a lesson at the end. The dog's protecting its yard. The you know the deer's protecting its fawn. Um, what would you advise about that? It's true. I don't like stories that end in a in a real clean ending like that. I like there to be a lot of questions at the end. 
Um, I end my books the same way, you know, 10 pages before they should have ended. So they linger with you, you know. If I wrap it up, you can walk away and you're not worried about me anymore. I think for her, you know, in terms of a story, what you want to do is I fundamentally believe that every story is about five seconds of our lives. Mm -hmm. So in the story I told you, the five seconds is the moment that the emergency room door opens. I see my buddies on the other side. So I would – her five seconds is probably the moment where the cloud is with the deer and the dog – but I got to ask her, what does that mean in those five seconds? Once you find out what it means, you just reverse it. You ask yourself, well, if it means that she's discovered that this dog is going to be a protector of her home forever, and that's an important thing for her, she starts her story at a moment where she doesn't feel like she's safe, and she feel like, feels like her home is not safe. And then she can bring it to the point where she's realized that this dog, who hopefully is tiny, will be a protector of hers, and that might be enough for today. And um, that way it's not going to be wrapped up completely because... You know, because somebody, a human being, can still come in and stomp on your dog too. But it's nice to have someone next to you who's willing to stand up for you. So let's tell some dog stories. I'll tell you a dog story, and I, I think you've got a dog story too, right? I have. A, a, I have a lot of dog stories. <laughs> okay, so I'll tell you a dog story first. So I had this dog named Malcolm, and I, I he was my dog at the time I was getting divorced. And Malcolm, Malcolm's whole attitude was, "Well, you may be getting divorced, but you can't divorce me." And the, and the plan was, I mean, even even in court, the judge looking at the whole agreement said, looked up and said, "I'm glad to see that Malcolm is well provided for." But the plan for Malcolm was he was going to go and live with my ex-wife, uh, and Malcolm didn't really appreciate that. And any time I took him out to to do anything, he would. At the end, I would open up the back of the Subaru station wagon, and he'd flatten himself down like a flounder against the ocean floor. Like, maybe you just won't see me to get me out of here. Or maybe if I cling enough to this rubber mat here, you won't be able to take me out of the car. And eventually I thought, you know what? He's right. So he should just come live with me. So, I w- But I was living in an apartment where they didn't really exactly allow dogs. Uh, and... But I, he was a very engaging, winning dog. I thought, well, they'll, they'll overlook this. And it kind of did. <laughs> and, and in meanwhile, I started realizing that he didn't really like to be left alone in the apartment. And he was a very easy dog to bring to work. So I would bring him to work all the time. And he, would, and he was very well behaved. I worked at WTIC. I had a three-hour show. He would just curl up on the floor. People would even try to get him to engage, and he wouldn't do it. I remember Lowell Weicker was in there one day. He was going, come on, come on over here. And Lowell Weicker's kind of used to being obeyed. And then he'd go, McEnroe, your dog doesn't like me. Uh, the only person he ever liked was Rebecca Lobo, and he liked her way too much. Um, so, um, so this was all fine. Everything was working out great. In, but until 2008, um, President Obama, oh, candidate Obama, was coming to Hartford. He was going to be appearing at the Hartford Civic Center. So that meant I was going to move my show to the Hartford Civic Center, which meant that I couldn't bring Malcolm to work with me because I couldn't bring him to the Civic Center. And but I wanted to get him out of my apartment because my because the cleaning ladies were coming. And I'll come to them in just a second. But I realized, like, I can't even leave him in my car downtown at the Civic Center because the whole place was going to be swept by the TSA and, and various federal agencies. I'm sure they were going to have, like, bomb-sniffing dogs in these parking garages. Imagine if a bomb-sniffing dog sniffs an actual dog in a car. That could just be very confusing. So I decided I have to leave him in my apartment, but my cleaning ladies are coming. And the cleaning ladies are uh, Brazilian, and they're a Brazilian family, and they all speak Portuguese, and some of them speak English, but you never know from week to week 
whether you're getting anybody who only speaks Portuguese or getting somebody who speaks some English. So you kind of have to assume that you're getting somebody who doesn't speak any English. And so the day went by and I was in, in a frenzy just getting ready for this Obama thing. It was a big thing. It was, he was coming to Hartford as a candidate. And I just – at the back of my mind, I'm thinking, uh, i got to do something about the dog. i got to do something about the dog. The cleaning ladies are coming. And one of my concerns was that although the dog was a very peaceful dog, if somebody just came through the door, he would stand up and bark for a couple of seconds. And one of my cleaning ladies, the leader of this family, this, is this sainted – 80-year-old woman named Maria, and I just didn't want her to open this door, have this large black dog bark at her, and just fall over dead of a heart attack because I was already breaking about 18 rules in this apartment building, and if one of my cleaning ladies died, I just knew that would be a problem, and I'd feel really bad because I like Maria too. So I thought, what am I going to do? So at the last minute, I'm really running late here, and I'm getting very panicky, and, and I think, okay. And so I get on the computer, and I Google image black mixed breed dog or something and I get a picture that looks kind of like Malcolm and I print it out um, and then I (laughs) then I draw a cartoon balloon coming out of the dog's mouth and I write woof (laughs) which is probably by the way not what dogs say in Portuguese Uh, but I write woof and I tape it to the door so that way as they're coming to the apartment door they'll see a picture of a dog going woof and that will prepare them for the fact that that's going to happen once they open. It's just like the best idea I can come up with. So then I go off and I cover Obama and I forget the whole thing. I just forget that this, any of this ever happened because it was such an interesting and exciting day. And so <laughs> I come back to my apartment building and there's a security guard there uh, that I have to pass by. And he says, uh, your cleaning ladies forgot their keys, so I had to let them in. And I said, well, fine. Thank you for doing that. And he went, nice sign. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, then I suddenly remembered this and I thought oh, oh my lord so I go up there and I walk in and the dog's there and he's fine and in uh, Nick, on the dining room table there's a list a little piece of paper and it says dear Mr. McEnroe these are the following cleaning supplies that you need and I realized that the cleaning ladies who came that day spoke perfect English <laughs> <laughs> and so I've clearly just, you know, done this insane thing that they're probably pu- they're probably home thinking, what what is wrong with him? What did he do this for? So anyway, that's my dog story. That's pretty good. Uh, the contrast between Obama and your dog. The fact that you're interviewing Obama and really the focus of your day is the dog. Like that's right. your primary concern, you know? <laughs> Most people would be obsessed about one thing, yeah. but you're obsessed with your dog on that right. day, which says something about you, I think. Possibly, and, yeah. You know, Maybe that's the that's the revelatory detail you were talking about. Right, before. exactly. We want to um, find out. You know, we want to find out really why is this guy more worried about his dog than the presidential candidate who's coming to town. Although, if I sharpen that story up, I think it's also about the chaos you're in after a divorce. It's like every single day you you do sort of feel like, oh, how? What am I doing? Why am I living in this apartment? Why is my dog here? Where? I mean, there's sort of a way in which after a divorce, so many things about your life are kind of disrupted. That you're improvising all the time. Right. You're missing a person who used to be there to do things, and the absence of that person is also creating additional problems on top of it. Right. Okay, so we're talking to Matthew Dix. Uh, You tell uh, your dog story, and then we'll go to break, and we'll come back, and we'll talk more. This uh, time is flying by, but uh, tell a dog story. All right. Uh, It's a story I've never told before, so I'm going to sort of pull it together here. Um, uh, The reason I have a bunch of dog stories is because my parents also broke rules with dogs. There was five dogs allowed at any time in my town, so we always had five. Like, the kids did not have enough food to eat, but there was always enough food for the dogs, and there was enough food for five dogs. So we had, um, we had Mieselman, who was named after the doctor who did my father's vasectomy, and we had Pac-Man, who was named after my mother's favorite video game, which she seemed to have plenty of time to play. 
Uh, and we had Pirate. And Pirate was a dog who was beautiful. It was like the most beautiful of the dogs that we ever had. And it was the sweetest dog we ever had. And my parents were completely irresponsible when it came to dogs. They fed them, but that was essentially all they did. So the dogs ran wild. There were people in our town who knew our dogs, like who lived miles away. Oh, I know that dog. He comes to my house. So um, <laughs> so we were sort of in charge of the dogs as best as we could, and I was the oldest. And so um, one day we're, um, we're down at the end of the driveway underneath the oak tree, and we're getting ready to be picked up for Sunday school by my aunt, who's going to, you know, she's going to come and get us. And Pirate comes running out of the house because, you know, none of our dogs are on leashes or anything. And Pirate goes flying across the street. And I realize, like, I got to get this dog back before my aunt comes here because then I'm not going to know where Pirate is. And I'm just attached to Pirate in a way, probably because he's so cute and I'm so young. And so I scream for Pirate. I'm like, get over here before Sunday school begins. And I'm 10 and 10-year-olds only think five seconds in front of them at all times. I'm a fifth grade teacher, so I'm well aware of this. And so when I scream his name, I don't bother looking left or right down the street. And so Pirate, for probably the first time in his life, listens to me and comes flying back across the street just as a car is passing. And he gets hit and killed right in front of us, um, in front of me and my four brothers and sisters. And sadly, it is not the first time that I have seen a dog get hit by a car and killed because of my irresponsible parents. We have seen this before. But this is the first time that I feel like it is my fault. It is, for the first time, not my parents' fault that this dog is dead, but it is my fault that I should have been the person responsible, and I was not. And so my parents, um, the time they're always responsible is when it comes time to pull the dog off the road and bury it. That's the moment. They're really good at that. They're really good at burying dogs. And, um, at, you know, my sister just reminded me of this. They send us to Sunday school, even though we've just watched our dog get hit and killed. I think they figure, like, there's four others, so why would the kids be that upset? But we go to Sunday school weeping, and when we get there, the teachers ask us, why are you crying? And we tell them why we're crying. And it's, um, it's the best day of Sunday school because they send us to the basement where there's the cookies and the punch, and they just tell us that we can eat as many cookies and drink as much punch as we want, and for one day we don't have to learn about God. And that is a pretty fantastic moment for me. <laughs> All right. Um, okay, now that's a story. Uh, all right, this is Matthew Dix. Uh, he's an amazing storyteller, as you're starting to grasp. Uh, you can tweet us at WNPR Colin. We have to take a break, and then we'll come back. So uh, we're talking to Matthew Dix. Uh, he is a master storyteller, we should say. And uh, we'll, we've got to make sure we have time to get into this. Uh, he's many other things, including a novelist. Uh, and uh, his newest novel, I think it's his fourth, The Perfect Comeback of Carolyn Jacobs, uh, is now out. Um, uh, I was saying during the break, you know, uh, m- people who listen to this show are probably starting to get this idea that I've started going to this church. And one of the reasons I go to this church is because uh, I had— done a show with its pastor, Nancy Butler, who has ALS. And she's a, she's a master storyteller. Her her sermons are just full of amazing stories. And I the stories, I mean, like a tiny little snippet of a story from this past Sunday is that she 
because of her ALS, she has to have all this technology that takes the place of her muscles. She just basically doesn't really have any working muscles almost at this point, fewer and fewer with each passing week. And so she's um, the, one of the big problems is how to answer a cell phone, how to just answer a phone when it rings. And there's something called Blue Ant. And it's a, a thing where and the, if, when the phone rings or something happens, you say, Blue Ant, speak to me. And then Blue Ant will answer the phone for you. And she's also got um, Dragon software, which is the software you can dictate into things. And she was sending an email to her sister. Uh, and uh, she was dictating the email. And suddenly her cell phone rang and she went, Blue Ant, speak to me. But somehow or other she did it wrong. And then she went, oh, crap. Um, you know, oh, no, it's not doing the right thing. What did I, I supposed to say something else about Blue Ant? I was uh, I, oh, God, I don't know. What am I doing here? And it's all going through the Dragon software into this. <laughs> and she read the whole email to us, like the way that the Dragon software had sort of kind of interpreted the whole thing. But what I really wanted to associate with you, Matt, is that I'm these stories are incredibly compelling, partly because she's in this very bad situation. She's got ALS. Um, and the story that you just told, I think most people, if they if I ask them to tell a story about their dog, they're not going to think about the story where the dog got hit by a car and they felt responsible because people, I think they're afraid of the darkest material in their lives, but that doesn't seem to be your instinct. Right. That's true. So when I get a theme for the moth or even for Speak Up, the show we do here in Hartford, the first question I ask myself is what is the worst thing that I've ever done that relates to that theme? And if I have an answer, I know I'm going to have a story that has a pretty good shot at winning. Most people just don't want to get on stage and be as vulnerable um, as uh, great storytellers are willing to be. And that vulnerability is really important because it lets people know that, you know, we have done, I've done something terrible and you have also done something terrible. And I can connect to you in a way. Um, you're not going to speak about your terrible thing, but you're going to feel a lot better about the thing you've done um, after I share the thing that I have done. My friend Peter uh, likes to, used to say, uh, most people don't want anyone to know who they really are. I insist on it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think that's very true. Yes, I have a friend who says I live out loud, and there's almost nothing that I won't um, share. You know, there's a couple times when my wife has said, no, that mm. will not be shared. But actually, I'm going to tell a story at an upcoming Speak Up show um, about the night our daughter was conceived. And um, it involves a frozen bag of corn. And I said, can I tell the corn story? Which I've already told at the Moth and One, mm. but now I'm going to tell it in front of friends. And she yeah. paused for a moment, and then she said, yes, you can tell the story of the frozen bag of corn. So, you know, it's, it's again, it's not going to sort of cast me in the greatest light, but I know that people will oddly love me more <laughs> for sharing the things that I do that are not um, so noble. What's the veracity rule? Is there some kind of moral code about you don't embellish. You have to stick with the facts. For me, I stick to the facts. The only um, the lies you can tell are, tend to be lies where you're going to strip out information that will be distracting to the story. Mm -hmm. So I have no problem with taking away something that um, doesn't apply. If there's a third person in a story a lot of times, mm -hmm. but the third person is irrelevant, they're gone. They yeah. didn't exist anymore. Uh, I'll compress time quite often. So a Monday-Friday story becomes a Monday-Tuesday story just to keep it simpler for you. I'll switch the order of things sometimes so that the story will build better. So it'll be the same three events as they happened, but I will place the most significant event at the end of the story. But in terms of fabrication, the only time I'll ever create something that didn't exist is if I can't remember a detail, and I think that detail is important enough that we all see the same thing at the same time, I will make an assumption. 
but it will always be the most reasonable assumption possible. So I'll never sort of embellish and make the story better. I will always go for the most dull and most average and most commonplace assumption that I could make. But I do it very rarely. The um, uh, I think you've blogged about this. I mean, given just how how many things have happened to you, eventful things have happened to you in your life. You've died twice. You've been arrested. We were over that. Went over that at the beginning. There are going to be somebody, some people who go, ah, that you, not all of that can happen to one person. There are going to be people who will challenge you about that. Yeah, um, it doesn't happen as often as I would expect. I tend to just think. Sorry, um, it's the it's the case. And actually, for most of my really unfortunate moments, you can just go back into the newspapers and you can find the report <laughs> on the accident. And you can find my trial and you can find my arrest. And um, I guess there's no reports of my homelessness, but um, but it happened. It is true that um, I have a lot of things that have happened to me that seem to um, these things don't happen to most people. But again, those stories tend not to be the best stories that I tell. The simplest stories are the stories people like the most. Well, you, you, use, you use the word vulnerable. And, and um, I think one of the reasons people don't tell some of the kinds of stories that you tell is that they obviously feel very vulnerable at the point of the story. This is a story about something that is very disturbing to them and might be disturbing to somebody else. But they also feel as though there might be consequences. And, you know, I mean, you're an elementary school teacher. You tell all these stories about yourself that an elementary school teachers seem to me to be very vulnerable people, people who can be challenged. And in fact, one of your stories is about someone anonymously trying to take things that you've written out of context and, and kind of get you. But uh, it, do you feel like you're kind of out on a high wire a little bit, just telling stories that, I don't know, that come up at parent-teacher conferences later? Wait a minute, aren't you the guy who, you know? <laughs> right. Uh, you know, the thing I tell storytellers, and, you know, when I'm questioned by an audience member, the 19-year-old version of me is not the 44-year-old version of me. So if I'm going to tell you the story about the time I stole money from a charity when I was 19 years old, you really, if you think that that is, represents the 44-year-old version of me in any way, I just think there's a disconnect that I'm not able to, to fix in you. Uh, we all do things at certain points in our lives that we're not proud of. I'm just willing to discuss stealing the money from the charity at 19 and talk about what I learned from it so that when I'm 44, uh, I'm an entirely different person. Frankly, I'm an entirely different person at 44 than I was at 43. Mm -hmm. So I am just telling you the past. I am not telling you how I exist in the present, but just how I managed to get here. So, you know, that's sort of the cover, I guess you could say, I mm -hmm. use. But um, it's how I try to get the storytellers who work with me to talk about things in their childhood that they might not want to necessarily say. You know, unlike a lot of storytellers, you're also a writer. You also write fiction. A lot of storytellers, they just stick to the storytelling. Um I want to play, play us um, a story we recorded earlier today. This is one of your fellow fiction writers. This is a guy who's a novelist and a short story writer. And he had I saw this thing in a blog that he was doing for Commonweal. His name is Rand Richards Cooper. People hear him on this show all the time. And so I said, come on in. And he brought, came in and he had the thing printed out. I said, no, 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 put it aside. I want you to just tell it. But because Rand's a writer and because he's a really good writer too, well, you'll actually hear. You'll hear how he tells the story. Um, and I want your reaction because I, yeah, you do both things. You you tell stories a certain way and you write a little bit differently, I think. It's true, yes. So, so let's hear Rand's story. So let's hear a story. Rand Richards Cooper is here in the studio with me. Um, so you took a trip to Virginia recently? I did. You know, uh, Colin, how you have these recurring emblematic strange encounters with people that happen. And, and there seem to be certain kinds of encounters that just come up again and again in your life. And you wonder if you, you're being singled out for some particular kind of <laughs> existential experiment. Um, mine 
happened to be with a particular kind of American who I think of as being tenaciously loquacious, the kind of person who you find yourself with in, in some sort of innocuous, a stranger, mm-hmm. some sort of innocuous situation, and you're making small talk, and suddenly you realize that that person's idea of small talk is to reveal all these great private intimacies to you. And this this happens to me over and over again. And I, it makes me think of the, you know, that Tom Waits song when he talks about the solitary stranger who spends the facts of his life like small change on a, on, on a stranger. <laughs> Did I say that solitary stranger? That solitary sailor. No, solitary sailor. That okay. solitary sailor who spends the facts of his life like small change on a stranger. Well, I'm I'm that stranger, and here was one typical instance. We go to visit my sister in a small uh, Virginia hamlet where she lives near the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, and there's one motel in town, and we stay in the one motel. And in the morning, I get up and go to the little office and get a cup of coffee, and there's one other guy in the small office. There's also the manager. The guy is standing at the coffee machine, and, and so we're both waiting for the coffee to finish percolating. The uh, the manager asks us, do you sleep okay in your rooms? We both uh, individually say, absolutely. But then the guy says, well, you know, actually, I got the apnea, so so I'm, I'm, I was wearing my mask last night. And he, he smiles at me, and he says, you know, give, give my wife a break. And I, I nod obligingly, and he says, my wife and I, we're, we're here for our fifth anniversary. I say, congratulations. Actually, we were together 22 years before we got married. I said, well, actually, my wife and I were together eight years before we got married. So so your wife finally popped you the question, huh? I, I say, to, to be obliging. And actually, he explains, and he goes into why they waited so long. They waited so long because she'd been collecting alimony from her ex. <laughs> but finally, they decided, eh, they're not getting any younger. It's time to get hooked. See, and he tells me why. He says, well, you see, I get this obesity thing going on. My, my doc tells me I got to give up the cigarettes. I got to cut down the food. I got a lot of heart disease in my family. My wife's got some issues, too. And I just nod again to be, you know, friendly, polite. And all the while, he's, he's dumping this just stupefying amount of sugar and creamer into these two <laughs> huge coffee cups, you know, like XXL coffee cups, the kind of coffee cups that you just can't even believe they exist. And he's literally talking and dumping the stuff in. And telling me about his wife's issues. And he says, actually, he shot her. I said, what? wait, who shot her? My wife's ex. He shot her. <laughs> I said, he shot her? Yep. Put her in a wheelchair. <laughs> my God, I, you know, I don't know what to say. I mean, my God, that's awful. Yep, well, you have a nice one now. <laughs> and he puts the caps on his, on his coffees and, and leaves. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm standing there realizing, okay, I just engaged with this guy for like 90 seconds, and I heard about all of his possibly mortality-inducing medical issues, uh, the fact that they milked his wife's ex for 20 years of alimony, that the wife's ex shot her, that she's in a wheelchair, that he has sleep apnea. And it's like, I, you know, this happens to me over and over again. And in those moments, a number of kind of alienating things happen in me. And one is like... I think, okay, if this is this guy's small talk, you know, with a stranger, <laughs> like, what, what, is, what does he say for his friends? Yeah. And, and, and then also, um, like, you think, okay, where – these kinds of conversations make you, make me feel like a monster of privacy. Now, you know, I'm a pretty gregarious guy, but mm-hmm. in those moments you're thinking, all right, there's two of me. There's the one who's listening and being polite, and then there's the other who's sort of sitting back and taking all this in, that filtered – inner self that's assessing and like where is that with this other guy 
And once you start thinking along these ways, you begin to feel this strange alienation that burbles up. I don't know, Colin, maybe you might, you might feel this a fair amount, actually. I, I'm thinking back to the guy, and I'm thinking maybe with his friends he only makes small talk. Maybe he only ever talks about well, the, the weather and the Washington Nationals. You know, and, and he yeah. can only tell you these incredibly dire things. Maybe. You know, some people I, I've told the story to have said, yeah, you have to understand that particular dynamic. Sometimes there's a special liberation, you know, as you're saying, in talking with a stranger – and, and some of these people maybe maybe feel a little bit you know cold and, and guilty. It's like oh I was I was unsympathetic or I was unable to field his his need to share and 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 commune with me. But I don't know. It all just seems so casual. He could have been talking about the Mets. He could have been talking about fishing. Right. Well, back home they're probably going. Geez, I wish Jim Ed would open up once in a while and just say what he's really thinking. Well, you know, there's a this just to sort of tie a little literary bow on this. When, when Tocqueville visited America 150, 200 years ago and wrote Democracy in America, he was struck by many things American. And, and one was um, the a particular conversational style. And he says an American doesn't really know how to converse. He does not talk but holds forth. Now, now he was particularly paying attention to our predilection for, for preaching, for country preachers, and for, and for argument, for dialectic. But I think this sort of holding forth thing has now also gotten a, a boost from a kind of popular, confessional, therapeutic culture. And honestly, I think of all the regions of America, it was not insignificant. I was in the South. It's Amer- uh, New Englanders are probably the most likely to abstain, refrain, hold back, and, and be private when it comes to these things. And, you know, I, I felt, as I said, like a sort of monstrous, a New England monster of privacy. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, I'm worse than you are, as we know. So, anyway, Rand Richards Cooper, thank you so much for coming in and telling this story. Thank so, you. So we're here with Matthew Dix. We're going to grab a quick break. We'll come back. We'll talk about the difference between writing uh, a novel, writing a short story, uh, and telling one. Tell me a story, remember what you said You promised me, you said you would You gotta give in, so I'll be good Tell me a story, then I'll go to bed I know it's a parable. I know it's meant to illustrate a point. But how'd you like to go through life telling people I was one of the foolish virgins? Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our interns are Nate Gagnon and Zach Lasala. The part of Bill Curry was played by Mike Daisy. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff telling that story about this guy who used to tell really long stories and then he had this kitchen accident where, well, it's a long story. On tomorrow's show, Colin and Joyce Carol Oates tell each other stories. And now, back to Colin. And there's actually a moment uh, in the perfect comeback of Carolyn Jacobs, Matt, uh, Matthew Dix's new novel, where somebody says, it's a long story, uh, okay. which made me think, well, that's sort of the storyteller's dilemma. So just go quickly do a little um, uh, autopsy uh, on Rand's story. So uh, he he shares some kinship with you. He's a, kind of a born storyteller, but he's also, I think, a writer first and foremost. And I think you can hear that writer in the story. Yeah. I mean, when I write a novel versus telling a story, it's a very different thing. I can hear the writer in him in terms of the way he does dialogue. Uh, for sure. It, it would have to change quite a bit sort of for the stage. You know, his use of sort of adjectives and adverbs are placed in a way that a writer would place them and sort of not a storyteller. The end of his story, I can hear him looking for sort of multiple um, revelations and reasons why he's telling that story. But when you're telling a story as opposed to writing or, or writing a novel, really you have one thing that you're looking for. So I have a I have a story people like where when I'm a freshman – 
a senior um, beats me up in high school very badly. It's the first time I'm really physically hurt in a serious way. And if I really wanted to be honest about that story, I learned sort of three really important things about life in the moment that I'm being beaten. But when I tell that story on stage, it's one thing. Mm-hmm. And it can be each, you know, each story, I can spin it to have one of those things that I realize. But it can never be all three. Simplicity is extremely mm-hmm. important in storytelling. You need to sort of have a clean line all the way through to the end. And in the end, this was the point I was trying to reach. Not these are three points I want you to think about. Um, you know, it's got to be simple and it's got to be honest and it's got to be, you know, there's got to be a little bit of vulnerability there at the end. It's interesting because your novel, your newest novel, is it does involve high school bullying, but you can go more places with it in a novel, right? It's true, yes. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of my novel, I hope that someone's not coming away with, here's the one thing Matt wanted to say about, you know, whatever topic I'm writing about, but mm-hmm. sort of like, here's a bunch of ideas that I have been presenting in a fictional world that I'd like you to consider. All right. We've got to cover some, a few things, including, actually, so we don't forget, um, you've got a really big event coming up at Divinity Music Hall. Tell us about that. So Speak Up is an organization my wife and I run. It's a storytelling organization. We produce shows. Um, we partner with Real Artways. That's our home base. Mm-hmm. But we have um, partnerships with, like, the Mount in Lenox and um, schools around here. The, we have a show coming up on October 2nd at the Connecticut Historical Society. But on January 28th, we have um, our first show at Infinity Hall, which is sort of like stepping up into the big leagues for us. We, we sell out all of our other shows, but we, those, these are venues of 200 people. Infinity is 500 people. So um, we're really hoping to fill this hall. We have some great people coming. We have the artistic director of the Moth, sort of the boss of the Moth, Catherine Burns, is coming. And um, Kion, actually, your very own Kion, is going to tell a story. She's told one for Speak Up before. She's fantastic. And we have a bunch of other um, excellent storytellers, local and some people I'm bringing in from New York. So it's going to be a great show. And then I wanted to make sure we had time to talk about, you've got this idea, which you've explained on the gist, too, that that people should just do this almost as a way of slowing down time in their lives, that people should should make a habit. Explain what you think the habit is. Sure. So every night I sit down at about 11 o'clock before bed, and I ask myself, if I had to tell a five-minute story from today, what would that five-minute story be? Now, most days, it's not terribly interesting what I'm going to write down. And I don't write down the whole story because that's sort of effort that I know no one will do. I have an Excel spreadsheet. And in a line of Excel, which I stretch out sort of to about maybe three inches, I write a sentence or two about the moment in that day that made that different, that day different than any other. So I originally started it because I needed more stories. I want to be on stage more often. So now my list is 254 potential stories that I could tell at any one time. So I've got plenty of material now. The unexpected benefit of doing this every single night asking myself what made this day different was time suddenly began to slow down for me. We always talk about how the week went by so quickly. My God, how did that year go by? I can't remember what I did last Thursday. None of that is true for me anymore. Every day carries meaning for me. And so time legitimately and honestly goes by at a slow and measured pace for me. And I never lose a day ever again. So sometimes it's just the mundane thing that might happen that I would somehow force myself to generate a story. But oftentimes, if you do it long enough, and it requires faith and commitment, which are two things that are terribly absent in today's world, but if you have faith and commitment to doing this every single day, eventually what happens is you develop a lens for storytelling, and you see moments in your life that would have passed you forever, and you would have never realized that this is a moment that has great meaning that I could share with someone or I can just hold in my heart forever. They go by and you lose them. 
But if you take a moment and reflect upon them, you know, it's a sort of meditation at the end of the day, reflecting on your day, and you write it down because the act of writing it down is really important because then you can go back to it. If you do it long enough, a month, two months, you'll suddenly discover that your life is full of meaning that you never discovered. It's kind of there in the story that we heard from Rand in the sense that the guy, is he has stories to tell. You don't get the feeling, the guy who's getting the coffee, you, you don't get the feeling he's a storyteller necessarily. It's like almost these things are just sort of flying by and happening to him. Rand is trying to tell a story about this guy telling a story. But I'm guessing that that guy doesn't think of his life as, as one where you can tell stories. I agree. And I suspect that Rand, five years from now, if he hadn't written down that story, he would probably forget oh, yeah. that guy at the coffee. And that's a big moment for him. Something he could hold in his heart forever, but if he doesn't write it down, it's gone eventually. Well, you and I met around the question of blogging, and I find being able to go back and look at a blog just as from 2006 to see what I was thinking um, is very helpful. I'm sure you do the same thing. <laughs> yes. We actually ha- I have a private blog that I write to my kids every day, mm-hmm. and the value of that, so like when my son Charlie is – you know, finally using the potty at three, and we wonder, like, when was Clara using the potty? You know, every single day of my children's lives have been documented in some small way, and we're able to go back and look at it in that regard. I'm a little ahead of you on the road of age. Eventually, because your children will be able to sort of note your decline, you know, your (laughs) failure to use the potty properly. When did Dad start doing that? Uh, All right, so Matthew Dix, it's so great to have you here. The Perfect Comeback of Carolyn Jacobs is uh, the new book, and, of course, Speak Up is the storytelling program they'll be. When when are you at Infinity? Uh, January 28th. Okay. Tickets are on sale now, Colin. Make your plans, and, yeah, call the Infinity box office. So here I am, chronically forgetful. I mean, I can't remember faces or names or pretty much anything trying to introduce my boss to my mother. And I'm like, uh, this is... Ah, forget about it. I did. Is that the story? I don't remember.